Hi again. It's going to be here. Yeah. A little section 71 through 75 today. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I'm interested in getting into the idea or rather talking about the limitations and value of our traditions for our gospel lives. I'm looking forward to talking about how to handle criticism. Yeah. Dealing with contentious people or people that are trying to in some way go against the church or our personal faith and religion. Welcome. Before we get into our discussions, we follow up on what we read? Yeah. So today we are in Doctrine and Covenants 71 through 75. In these sections, Joseph Smith and Signe Rigdon are asked to proclaim the gospel, to labor in the Lord's vineyard, and to confound growing enemies of the church. The Lord is also going to teach bishops regarding their stewardship, and he is going to help them take an account of their stewardship, as well as certify other people as missionaries. Joseph and Signe also continue the translation of the Bible, and they pray to receive the Comforter who teaches of all things. So there's a few things that we can talk about in these sections, but we want to focus in on two in particular— dealing with criticisms and the value and limitations of traditions for discipleship. So in order to help us dive more deeply into these scriptures, we have invited our good friend, Sean Tanuvasa. Sean, if you could come meet us up here on the stand, that'd be great. Wonderful. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. So Sean, you have an interesting job. Sean is the Polynesian Outreach Coordinator for the Seminary and Institute Program, mm -hmm. and he's also a teacher in this Institute Program at the church. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Polynesian Outreach Program that you're doing? Yeah, so we have um, a really good attendance with when it comes to the youth of the church in the Polynesian community. We're about 85, 90% of them that attend, but when it comes to Institute, their numbers drop to less than half a percent, actually. Wow. So, I was living in Southern California and invited me and my wife and my family to move down here. We moved in May to just kind of help them see the value of religious education beyond seminary and uh, to increase their enrollment and attendance. So that's a great sacrifice for you to be here. So thank you so much for doing that. It is a sacrifice because Southern California have some of the most beautiful beaches. Yeah. <laughs> it is a sacrifice. Yeah. So, Sean, uh, you read through these sections, and I'm wondering if anything you saw kind of stood out to you as meaningful or significant, uh, or you had any sense of what we need to know going into these. What were kind of your responses to, to what you read? I think for me, what I find interesting is that the Lord recognizes that the saints are experiencing some struggles. Mm -hmm. And he reminds them of two important things. Number one, turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. He sends out Joseph Smith and Signe Ringan to go out and say, go back and teach the gospel. And the second thing is, is he reminds them of the structure of the church. He talks about bishops. He talks about their responsibilities. And he reminds them that there's stability in the church. Excellent. Thanks for that. Um, so maybe we can get right into it and start talking a little bit about uh, dealing with criticism. As we get into this topic, Barbara, maybe can you can give us a little bit of historical context, what's going on and what kind of criticism the saints were facing at this time? So this dealing with criticism really does come directly from these scriptures. There's this gentleman by the name of Ezra Booth. We've talked about him before, but he becomes extremely antagonistic towards the church and especially towards the prophet. And so he starts writing some very antagonistic letters and publishing them in, in abundance in what's called the Ohio Star. And it becomes very detrimental in a sense to the church at that time, just because people are trying to ask these questions. They're trying to find out more about the church. They're reading these, these things from this person who was once a member of the church and who has now left the church. And so Joseph and Sidney are reading and studying and translating the Bible, and in the process of doing so, the Lord says, enough translating for now. You guys actually need to go out and talk about this criticism, mm. and you need to be forthright in doing so. And that's what actually we see section 71 specifically is going to be talking about. So we had a, uh, a viewer from home who read over these sections, and they sent us a question regarding how to respond to criticism. Maybe we can start with that. Hi. Today I have a question for the host that revolves around dealing with criticism. 
So, for example, I find it is easy for me to defend my personal beliefs of, of the principles that are taught in, in the Gospel of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, the part that is a little bit difficult sometimes is when my divine worth and my divine potential is under attack and being criticized. So, the question is, what have you found to be the most effective when defending and standing up for your divine potential and your divine worth when it is being criticized? What do you, what do you think she means by standing up for your divine worth and divine potential? What does that even mean? I think what I like about the section that the Lord instructs Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery is right at the beginning, he says that the time has verily come that it is necessary and expedient in me that you should open your mouths in proclaiming my gospel, the things of the kingdom, expounding the mysteries thereof out of the scriptures according to the portion of spirit and power which shall be given unto you even as I will. So... For years, I spent time visiting a high school in Southern California, talking to seniors, high school seniors, about what they were learning about the church. And what they were learning were basically criticisms about the church. After about four or five years, I realized that I found myself defending the teachings of the church too much, and it wasn't getting anywhere. So what I decided to do was to speak of Jesus Christ. And when I talked of Jesus Christ, I felt like my worth had meaning to Christ. I didn't have to defend the teachings of the church. If they saw it differently and they criticized it a certain way, that was something they needed to learn on their own. But where I could connect with them was, I know I love Jesus Christ and I know you love Jesus Christ. And when I did that, my divine worth, no matter what kind of criticism, outside or from internally was strengthened, uplifted and edified and became more meaningful to me. Cecily, please. Maybe it's not so much other people questioning it, but yourself questioning it. You kind of get it into your mind. You're constantly judging or comparing yourself to others. So it's hard to truly feel your own worth, especially if other people are also coming at you. So you really do always have to keep that like eternal perspective in your mind so you're able to continue and help with like difficult questions you're dealing with. Wow. Yeah. The, there's sometimes an expectation that if you don't look a certain way or if you don't act a certain way or if you don't have enough money that you're not worth as much as other people, like these kinds of standards of yeah. if you don't conform to the standard of beauty, you know, I'm better than you because I do. But just recognizing that our sense of self and our sense of worth is not tied to those kind of temporal fleeting things, but rather um, to our kinship with God. And, and, and I, just, I just want to say thank you, first of all, for sharing that. That is probably the most difficult criticism that we have to deal with. And that's typically sometimes what we hear is our own voice. And we wonder whether if that's of the Lord, not of the Lord. And it becomes a struggle for us especially like in a young woman's theme, you know, we talk about what do the young women memorize? We are daughters of our heavenly parents who love us, right? I mean, they're trying to help the girls understand that their worth is completely associated with their heavenly parents and the atonement of Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation. I remember one time I was at a chaplaincy meeting. One of the head chaplains for the Navy came and spoke to us and they asked us the question. They said, your, your chaplains are different in the Navy and in the Army than other chaplains. And they said, can you explain to us why they care so much about everyone. It's like they think everyone's their brother and their sister. And we kind of laughed. We said, well, we, 
we, we do. do. <laughs> That's, that is the difference. We do see them as brothers and sisters. Our divine worth is completely associated with our heavenly parents. So just a question for you guys in the audience then, whether young women or, or older people, how do you help them overcome this criticism? It's certainly a relevant question for today when yeah. civil discourse is something we are straining for so often. You know, it's so easy when we feel criticized, we want to turn around and criticize them, right? It's like if we're being hurt, we want to hurt back. Mm -hmm. That's very eye for an eye, but we've been taught that's not what we're supposed to do. And I have found that as soon as you get into a conversation or you're in a situation and you want to win, you've lost. Mm -hmm because then it's combative inherently. And so I love what Sean said about, you know, if we can testify of the Savior either through our words or through our examples and trying to maintain, you know, his spirit with us, we will see the divinity in that other person. Mm -hmm. And they might not ever agree with us, but hopefully they will see that we care about them, just as you mentioned the, the chaplains did. And that can at least diffuse the contention. But we've got to take out the venom and learn to speak and to act with love in whatever we do. If you have a conversation like we're talking about, and it's a private conversation, we don't need to go out to the whole world and publicize it. We don't need to go tell them that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. But there are some times when we do, when it's a public criticism, sometimes we need to be publicly defending ourselves as well. In verse five of this section, section 71, and this is historically important in this context because the Lord is talking to the prophet of the church, and he's specifically talking about how the prophet, in this case, should be responding to a very public criticism, right? And so he says in verse seven, wherefore confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. And inasmuch as you are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. I mean, the Lord isn't just saying, you know, just let them keep going. You're fine. He's like, no, you invite down. him to come out to the middle of the street and you talk to him and you make sure that everybody understands that he is full on wrong and these letters are false and that you need to stop it. But I think it's also important to realize that this isn't the case for everyone. There are going to be times when perhaps we feel if the criticism is of the church and not of us specifically or something like that, maybe we feel inadequate or not informed enough to respond in a way we think that the question deserves. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what do you do in those circumstances when you don't feel adequate enough or informed enough to respond in a way that you think the question deserves? Carlos, yeah, did you have? I remember when I was in the mission or mission president, I always teach that when we don't have an answer for something, Sometimes it's good to take the time to investigate about that and then come with an answer. Because sometimes we don't know. And, and it's good to say, I don't know, than saying something wrong. Sometimes we need to say, I don't know, but I know that the church is true mm -hmm. and share your testimony. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And I mean, just that idea of educating yourself, I think that's so important, especially for those of us who have children or function in some sort of teaching capacity in the church. There's something Elder Ballad said to CES church education instructors a while back, and this is what he says. Gone other days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone other days when a student raised a sincere concern and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. Gone are the days when students were protected from people who attacked the church. Fortunately, the Lord provided this timely and timeless counsel to you teachers. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek out of the best books words of wisdom, seek learning even by study and also by faith. So it's this idea that if we're not educated enough, if we feel inadequate, educate yourselves, become adequate. These are the kind of challenges that we're going to be facing as members of the church. And the Lord's prophets are asking us to rise to that challenge and to educate ourselves. And maybe a couple of other thoughts on this. 
One is, if all we're doing is always bearing our testimony, then the students now have Google and they're going to find their answers and they're not going to find their answers from their parents who aren't telling them the answers. The youth will find answers. Yeah. If you don't have them, they're going to find them. And sometimes they might be lucky enough to go to an institute teacher or they might be lucky enough to go to a bishop or, or a young woman's leader or something. But a lot of times their answers are coming from the internet. And the internet, trust me when I say, just like with Ezra Booth, there are people who are trying to destroy your children. Uh-huh. That sounds really harsh, but that's true. Yeah. Now on the other side, maybe a little bit lighter on this, sometimes as members of the church, we also take the victim idea because there's been so much anti-church in the past, and sometimes we consider ourselves a victimized people. Sometimes people aren't being critical at all. They're simply asking a question, and we get defensive before they even have a chance to talk. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's good to just simply say, can you help me understand what you mean by that? I remember getting this kind of question when I was in high school, like, what are you doing doing bad business for the dead? I mean, are you really going out to the cemeteries and digging people up? And people can get really defensive about that, or they can say, no, well, let's talk about it. And then all of a sudden, rather than having a defensive conversation, you're having a conversation that's hopefully helping them understand that we believe that all of God's children have a chance and we love you and everyone else. So it goes from being defensive to, let me help you have a stronger testimony and at least, if nothing else, feel God's love. Mm-hmm. I just had a thought when Barbara was talking, this idea that if we do not educate ourselves, as you mentioned, and we just continue in the path of just being automatic members of the church, then some of the things that we actually do will become just traditional things. Mm -hmm. And we may not understand how to be able to articulate the gospel in such a way to help other people or to help ourselves Mm -hmm. when we feel criticized in any way. So understanding and being educated can really help us understand that this is traditional, this is not traditional. Yeah. And on the idea, I'm wondering now if we could talk a little bit more about uh, traditions and how they can inform our spiritual life. So section 74 is an explanation of 1 Corinthians 7.14, in which Paul is discussing marriages between a believing partner and a non-believing partner, right? And the effects that that can have on children. And then what seems to be happening in this Corinthians is that non-Christian spouses wanted their sons to be circumcised according to Jewish tradition, Whereas Christian spouses didn't see the necessity of that because they believe that baptism was the new token of the covenant. And then the main point that Joseph Smith wants to make is in section 74, verse 7. But little children are holy, being sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ, and this is what the scripture means. Um, so he's getting this idea of how do we weigh the gospel truth with tradition, and how should this inform how we operate within our families. And we actually have a video from a few of our viewers who speak to this point. Hello, I'm Veronica and I'm filming from Valencia, Spain. Je suis marié, père de deux enfants. Je vis en République démocratique du Congo. The traditions in my family bring me closer to Jesus Christ because they remind me how beautiful the gospel can be. My grandmother is Ukrainian, and every Easter we decorate eggs in the traditional Ukrainian method that represent the new life and the rebirth that Jesus Christ offers us. These beautiful, colorful eggs remind me that repentance is a beautiful thing, and it's something that we can have in our lives that makes it so much more abundant and wonderful. Dans ma culture africaine, La famille est au centre de tout. Et l'Évangile m'a aidé à appliquer les principes du Christ dans euh, mon propre foyer. Et, et cela a rendu euh, ma famille très forte. Et cela nous aide à progresser 
et à devenir meilleur tous les jours de notre vie. Nous, nous sommes ensemble avec Christ comme notre seul rempart. Ciao. <laughs> so what are some positive traditions that you have in your family that brought your family closer to Christ? Yeah, Mayor? You know, I think about the traditions of our family gatherings. It's on the calendar every year for an extended family that whoever can come, we do a week of camping. And I'll tell you what, my children look forward to that tradition every year. If everyone shows, there's 85, 90 people within our immediate family. I think that the strength that comes from those numbers within that family is a tradition that I hope that will live on through my kids forever. The unity of family is central to God's plan. And that's what he wants us, is to gather often as families and to be able to lean on, because there's not one person in my family that I couldn't feel like I'd go to. And I believe that's because of the traditions that we've established and we've set as a family. That's awesome. Thanks, Mayor. Yeah, Sequoia, please. Every year, we always make gingerbread cookies around Christmas, and we always deliver them to our neighbors and friends that we have. And I think that just gives me the spirit of bringing them closer, and we get more relationship to them. It sounds like it brings in the spirit of Christmas, too, focusing on Christ and serving people. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Sequoia. Mm -hmm. So, Sean, I know you're Polynesian. I'm wondering what role has your culture played in your own spiritual growth and what role does it play in your current ministry to Polynesian kids? That's a great question. So actually, I'm married to a Spaniard, mm -hmm. a beautiful girl named Lisa, and we have learned to establish traditions in our home from both her Spaniard culture and my Samoan culture. We've said that uh, if it aligns with the culture of Christ, we will do it in our home. If it doesn't, we will remove it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. One of the things we do in the islands that Samoa and Tonga do very strongly, they will shut down everything on the Sabbath day. Right? There's nothing that goes on the Sabbath day. It is totally devoted to the Lord. And each night in Samoa, they'll have what's called the sa. And when the sa hits, it's a bell. The bell will ring. And wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you stop. You go to your home and you worship together. There's a song and a prayer. And so in my home, even though I'm married to a beautiful Spaniard, we have continued that tradition. Mm -hmm. In our home, our children and us, we gather together and before we have our nightly prayers, we sing and then we kneel and we pray. And that tradition has continued to keep us reminded of families and love and of the Savior. And so I'm trying to use the same idea, mm -hmm. Daniel, to help them see, hey, your traditions are great. We now need you to become educated religiously mm -hmm. so you can help in this great gathering of Israel. And I just want to commend you in your ministry too, because I mean, there is such power in just you being you and teaching the gospel. It's a kind of unspoken language, just a connectivity that you feel to your people. And, and I think that's true all over the world, right? With every yeah. culture. And when the Savior comes and we all are one, then culture, color, yeah. race, they all go away. Mm. And we become Zion, we become a God's family. Yeah. For now, we do the best that we can and, and help each other out in the circumstances we find ourselves. There's a statement by Elder Halsham, if I could, really quick, where he says, where family or national traditions or customs conflict with the teachings of God, set them aside. Where traditions and customs are in harmony with his teachings, they should be cherished and followed to preserve your culture and heritage. A tradition of even church sometimes can put us in a position where 
we aren't doing exactly what the Lord would have us do. And it's important to go back and say, okay, what did the Lord really teach about this? And what am I being taught today? And how am I living and how am I treating my family? How am I treating other cultures, people, et cetera? So Barbara, what's a, what's a charitable Christ-like way to respond when sometimes we bump up against these traditions that are maybe harmful or just not you know, divinely sanctioned? I, I think there are a number of things. I think my, my mind goes immediately to Elder Ballard talking to the Education Week, actually talking at, at Women's Conference a few years ago. He made the comment and he said, not everyone is coming from the same mold. Not everyone has the exact same future. And he says, we need to allow ambiguity in the church. We need to allow ambiguity in people. And he says, the way a person should be making decisions about what they're doing is by following the Spirit. So there are some things that are policies of the church that no matter what we feel, we cannot change. That, that's not up to us. That's up to the prophet. That's up to the first presidency, the quorum of the 12. They're making policies. But within those specific policies, there are things that we can decide. And so in responding to people, I simply say, I really appreciate that. And that's a strong tradition in the church. And I understand where you're coming from. But my husband and I had this conversation and we took it to the Lord as we were taught by the prophet to do. And we determined that in this specific instance in our life, this is what we've decided to do. But I think if we can respond kindly, there's a lot of teaching that's going on. I mean, there are a lot of people who will think, you know, I remember reading this quote from President Benson in the 1970s about this. Or I remember there was a policy about bishops and beards about this. And so they're, they're thinking about something in the past. And one of the things that we have to do as members of the church, especially with traditions, is we have to stay right in line with the prophet who's speaking Mm-hmm. Today, I totally agree with you. Aligning with the prophet and seeking to hear him can help us avoid some of these criticisms and traditions that take us away from the culture of Christ. That's why I love the name of this show, right? Come follow up. The whole idea about it is learn, come follow me, study it as a family, and then follow up on what you're learning and try to look at yourself and come closer to Christ. Learn to live the way that the Savior would. Follow up with what you're doing by individually learning about Christ and seeing where you can change. That's why I love it, because it gives everybody an opportunity to kind of just self-reflect and say, mm-hmm. how does this relate to me? And what can I do to follow up with what I'm learning to live more like Jesus Christ? Yeah. So do you guys have any thoughts on how we can use traditions to help us come into Christ? Hunter, you had a comment, please. Um, so one of my family traditions that we have is during Christmas time, at some point we all gather together and we just dance around the Christmas tree. And it comes from our Swedish background. All of our family just gets together. And it doesn't matter if they are members of the church or not, because about half of them are. But it just recognizes that, hey, we are all family. And I think that's probably one of the most important things in life is just to be with your family. Excellent. I remember when Elder Christopherson's brother Tom came out to his family as gay, and they had a lot of different questions they were asking. And the, his mother, so this is Elder Christopherson's mother, said to them, we just need to make sure that they know that they're safe in our family. And I think that's kind of what you're referring to. Like, this is a family that we accept people no matter what. And eventually, hopefully, we can be an eternal family. But sometimes it's just dancing around the Christmas tree that's going to get people there. Great comment. Thanks, Hunter. Yeah. Thank you for that. I just want to say that... Um You know, you don't have to have a culture to have a tradition. You just need to have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's your culture. I know for me, having grown up as a Samoan and then marrying a Spaniard, Jesus Christ became our culture, and the church and the way the church does things became our culture. I never lost who I was. My identity was never changed, but it grew. It grew because I knew my worth, and I'm grateful for that. 
So I'm grateful for the church and the tradition of the church and the culture of the church because it is the culture of Christ. So thanks for having me. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your insights, your life. We really appreciate it. And thank, thank you. you also to our audience here. Thank you for your insights. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and your traditions with us today. We really appreciate it. And to those of you at home, thank you for sending us your comments and questions and insights via social media. We'd love to have you come join us in the studio sometime, but if you can't, we hope you'll tune in next week for Come Follow Up. Thanks. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.